from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, I have a new novel coming out called Collusion, which I co-wrote with Pete Early. In the novel, our main character is Brett Garrett, a Navy SEAL who is injured in a helicopter crash and ultimately recovers and becomes a CIA agent and is able to thwart a Russian poisoning attempt. In order to have a little bit of fun between the plot line of the book and real life, I thought it would be great to do an entire podcast on Russia's fascination with poison as a weapon. Russia is one of the few countries in the world that assassinates their opponents by poison. I thought we'd explore the most nefarious and ruthless Russian murder plots. I'm pleased to welcome my guests, Pete Early, my co-author of Collusion, Amy Knight, author of Orders to Kill, The Putin Regime and Political Murder, 
and Jack Devine, a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, currently the founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, which specializes in international crisis management. I'm really delighted that my co-author, Pete Early, could join us because he's had an amazing career, uh, daily newspaper reporter, including at the Washington Post, written a number of books, spent a year at Fort Leavenworth at the prison, studying being a prisoner and looking at drugs and mental illness in prison, has written several books on Soviet agents and uh, defectors and Americans who were spying for the Soviets. So Pete brings to collusion, an amazing range of background. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and having you compliment me considering what your life and all the things that you've accomplished and done. It's very, very thoughtful and kind of you. The thing I loved about this collaboration was that from the start, you said to me that you not only wanted to tell a gripping Washington-based story, but you wanted to educate people and you wanted to take on current events and that kind of is a theme we haven't shied away from. I mean, we, in inclusion, we talk about Antifa. We talk about struggles our country are having now about Confederate monuments. We cover a wide berth of issues, including Russian poisoning, that many novelists would be afraid to get into. And I think that's a real tribute to you and your knowledge, but also the intense dedication you have as a historian to use facts to convey a larger story through fiction. You bring both reality about Russia and Putin, reality about the spy business, where you have spent a lot of your time. Part of what infused our idea of writing this novel, you know, we wrote Collusion a particular way because we're both making a case about the Russians. I want to make a point here, and this is not about the Russians generically. It's about the Russians under Putin, who's a very particular kind of personality. In addition, we wanted to introduce people to thinking in a much more complex way about the challenges we face in America with people who are recovering addicts. So we wanted to make vivid for the American people a kind of reality that's different than the, the sort of uh, Hollywood stereotype. And w would you talk a little bit about your own engagement in dealing with mental health issues and your concerns? And frankly, I mean, you're in that world, uh, you're a very significant figure as an expert and as a witness. When we began to think through collusion and the whole concept of developing characters who would be representative of the complexity of modern America, we came up with Brett Garrett, who is different from the normal action hero in that he has his own challenges in dealing with his own complexities of, of addiction and, and being a recovering addict and, and the the emphasis on the whole notion that you're never a recovered addict. You spend the whole rest of your life recovering. And, and talk a little bit about how you envisioned Brett's wrestling in his own life with his own challenges and how that would then affect his ability to be effective. Because I think when we, as we began to write Collusion, we saw this as taking a very interesting risk in that we're, we're bringing in a flawed central character uh, rather than somebody who is, is a, an automatic kind of James Bond hero. 
I think that was really important. When we, when we started plotting together the characters, we said, look, a lot of these um, books are written with these people's superhuman qualities. You know, they are triathletes who run 50 miles and they're, you know, they can do anything. They can get shot 20 times. They can, you know, and we wanted somebody much more realistic. And the trick is to try to get someone who has empathy, even though they have flaws. And we both felt that with Brett Carrot, we wanted someone who was a true patriot, but that didn't make him this superhero. And it was also interesting because we wanted him to be relatable to what's happening today. So we made him a veteran. We made him, of course, part of the CIA. But we also had him in a pretty exciting scenes end up getting shot down in a helicopter and badly burned. And at that point, this is based on fact, which you like to infuse in books. It used to be, you know, you'd watch a movie and they'd say, morphine, morphine, bring the guy morphine, and they'd shoot him up. Well, that changed. And it was a subtle change. It hasn't been highly recognized. And the military developed and improved a fentanyl lollipop that they said was much faster if you stuck it in the guy's mouth and it absorbed through the skin. And this was a precursor to leading to, in our case, Brett Garrett's opioid addiction. He gets burned. I once did stories about burn centers. I can't think of many injuries that cause such lasting pain and suffering as a burn. I started to understand how easy it would be to get addicted to something like this. If you are constantly in pain, you will do anything to get that relief. And so I thought this was a wonderful way to work these two in. And you led by saying, look, let's just don't make some comic book character here. We wanted to be much more complex while still keeping, these are action-driven books. That's what we did with every character. We kind of looked at them and said, I mean, our bad guys are based on reality, but we also try to explain why they think the way they do. Uh, one of our chief characters is President Kalugin, the Russian president. If you take that name out and you substitute Putin and you go and look where Putin's favorite residence is, how many private helicopters, how much money he has stolen, all of that's in our book. It's just we flipped the name. And I think that part of what we're trying to get across is that this is a real world. Collusion is an effort to fictionalize reality, not to create an alternative universe. And in this real world, we do have people who get up every day in America who are managing or seeking to manage both their mental health condition and uh, their addiction, if they have one, and to still be effective. And the system has a substantial number of people who go through what Brett Garrett, our central figure, does in the book. At the same time, we want to present the Russians as rational, not necessarily likable or sympathetic, the way Russia has evolved since the collapse of communism is really tragic in that the, they basically don't have much going for them other than terror. So the, their willingness to use force, whether it's in Ukraine or it's poisoning somebody in London, this is a manifestation of weakness, not of strength. And yet I think they see themselves trapped in a world where they are permanently at siege by this gigantic country, the United States. 
we have always been, since World War II, the main enemy. I know in the books you wrote, interviewing people, both on our side, the various spies, and then their defector, you had this sense of how much they focus on us and that how much that's still true. And we wanted to set up a believable series of steps in which, in the end, with absolute practical reality, we're putting the entire U.S. Senate at risk in a way that if you just look and extrapolate things the Russians have done and before that things that the Soviets did are very real. I mean, people, it's easy to forget that the Soviets at one point actually organized through the Bulgarians for a Turk to be hired to shoot the Pope. This is not a novel. They did it. So when we set up a moment where for their reasons, the Russians think that they have a valid advantage in wiping out the entire U.S. Senate. It's because you can imagine the kind of decision-making these guys do and the kind of tools they're used to. I mean, they've spent, uh, I suspect, going back into the czarist era over a century, developing various poisons. And for some, for some reason, more than anybody else in the world, the Russians have this fascination with poison. One of the things we learned when we were researching the book is that Actually, this fixation of poison goes way, way back to the 1400s when they poisoned a chicken and gave it in Moscow to Duke to kill him. And then there was Rasputin. But it really picked up with the rise of communism. Lenin was the target of an assassination attempt, and the shooter had coated the bullets with poison. And this fascinated him. And so he created what they then called the laboratory in 1921. And we talk about this in the book. It's the chamber. And basically, the mission of that was to find a way to develop a poison that was colorless, odorless, could dissipate quickly, couldn't be found in the bloodstream, to kill your enemies. One of the most fascinating cases was in 1978, a fellow named Georgi Markov, who was a defector. He worked for the BBC in London. And this just goes to both the mentality you're talking about, but the creativity Uh, the genius behind this evil, he was standing at the Waterloo Bridge waiting for a bus. And all of a sudden he felt this jab in his thigh. And he turned around and a guy had dropped an umbrella and the guy hurried, picks it up and jumps in a cab and leaves. Four days later, he was dead. And what they had done, and this is well documented, is they'd created this small steel sphere, almost the size of a pinhead, that contained ricin, a deadly poison. And then the sphere had holes in it, but it was covered with wax. At this point, there was no cure for ricin, no antidote. As his body temperature melted the wax, the ricin came out and poisoned him a painful death after four days. And this was when people started saying, hey, wait a minute, they told us they had closed this chamber. They'd said they wouldn't do this anymore back in 1953. And almost immediately we see in retrospect, oh, wait a minute, this guy died. In In fact, what's interesting is I'm not a Russian scholar, but when we were doing research on this, there was even questions about whether Lenin and Stalin both had been poisoned by their own people. And so, you know, this is almost part of the national character. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted, one, to talk about individual poisons, but also to talk about something on a grander scale. Because, you know, when I did my book about my defector, he said that after Putin got powered, and he considered Putin a thug, just a plain street thug. And he said after he got in 
two of his top advisors came to visit little Odessa in New York, and they went to dinner. The advisor said, you know, we made a list of all of our opponents we wanted to kill. And we had so many people on that list, we said, even we can't kill them all. Well, I mean, that shows the mentality and the unabashed willingness. I mean, they've killed people in England, France, Germany, and there was one attempt in the United States that nobody quite knows. But these are people who are, you know, not nervous about going out and trying to kill people. So you get this whole picture of how these people lived in an alternative reality from what we in the West view. You have this, you just made me think of the same thing. You can imagine Putin sitting around early in his reign, drinking vodka one evening with his key people, and they're going, the list is too big. I mean, I know we want to kill them all, but it would be so impractical. And he said, let's get some more vodka and think about this. Maybe we won't. I mean, you can, ima- you can imagine this kind of thinking. And I think we wanted to capture in a sense, for, for Americans and for Westerners, the objective horror of a regime which does think poison is reasonable and which does think that killing its opponents is the best way to win the argument. And at the same time, we wanted to have the people who were stopping them be normal Americans with normal challenges who are having to overcome their disadvantages in order to be effective. When I was in Moscow, the PR person for the SVR and I were at lunch and he told me his favorite story about Stalin. Someone came to Stalin and said, you know, comrade Stalin, we've discovered that 5% of people in our country are traitors. They are against us. And so Stalin sent out a decree to all the heads of local villages and everywhere else and said, find those 5% and kill them. And what happened was all of a sudden, the mayor of some little town would send, oh, Comrade Stalin, we found 10%, and we killed him. And the next person would say, oh, Comrade Stalin, we found 15%, and we killed him. And that is a different mentality than we're used to thinking in the United States. And another famous story about Stalin is, you know, the the Germans captured uh, one of his sons, and they tried to barter and say, you know, we'll give you some back. And he said, all Russian people are my sons. Kill him if you want. And, I mean, it, it's just a different way of looking at life than, you know, when I was in Russia, <laughs> I got to know the, this couple really, really well. I was staying with them. And, and their attitude was, enjoy the moment because tomorrow's going to be worse. It was almost just the flip of the American thinking, I can be the guy in the log cabin, I can be the peanut farmer, I can be the Hollywood actor, I can become president. The other was, oh my God, keep your head down because if you, I mean, one of my translators, we were on the subway and she said, you laugh too loud, don't call attention to yourself. Well, why? Because back in those days, you could end up being sent to a gulag, you know, people were suspicious. That's right, they wonder exactly why are you laughing? You know, along that line, two things, I. We know a young lady who came over, she's now in her 30s, from uh, Nizhny Novgorod. I was talking with her one, one night about Putin, and she said, I love Putin. She said, I look in his eyes, and I see the strength that makes me proud to be Russian. She said, I'd marry him in a minute. And so when the sanctions began to go in, I asked her about him. She said, look, all of us thought it was a great decade. We don't get great decades very often. <laughs> 
So now it's not going to be a great decade. We're just back to being Russian. So the idea that you can do something to bother us uh, is, is kind of crazy. When I would fly in Air Force One, Reagan would tell the always come back and tell Soviet jokes. And my favorite was he came back one day and he said, this was during the Gorbachev era, he said, man goes to buy meat, stands in line for two hours, gets to the front of the line, the clerk says, oh, comrade, we just sold out. But I understand there are chickens down the street. Goes to the chicken store, he stands in line for two hours. Oh, comrade, I just sold the last chicken. But there's a fish store down the street. He goes down, now he's been standing in line for four hours. Gets in line and he grumbles. He says, under Gorbachev, this isn't working. We talk perestroika, we talk glasnost. There's no meat, there's no chicken. I'll bet there'll be no fish. Man behind him taps him on the shoulder. Comrade, I am KGB. You're very lucky that Gorbachev is in charge. If Brezhnev were still in charge, you would be shot for treason. He gets home. His wife says, so how was it? He said, it's worse than ever. They're out of bullets. <laughs> this is why you and I get along so well. You need to go to a communist country if you want to really see why communists failed. I was in, in Moscow. This is right after the collapse. And one of the persons I interviewed had been a cab driver. And he'd gotten 50 rubles a month, which everybody, that was kind of the normal pay, 50 rubles a month. What did he do? He got up in the morning. He went down, reported to work. He got out of his cab. He immediately flipped on the light, not in service. He drove around till his tour ended, and he went in. He said, why would I pick up passengers? They're a bother. So he just rode around all day. So I went to the most famous glass factory outside of Moscow. And the guy says, we had, look at these awards, these banners. It was closed. Look at all this. We were the best glass producers in all of the Soviet Union, and we never sent out a product. And I said, What? He said, well, in your capitalist society, you decide by dollars and cents. We decided by meters, meters produced. And one day we thought, we make it thinner, there'll be more. So we made it so thin that it broke when it came off the assembly line. But we thought, this is not a problem because we got rid of our delivery fleet. And we just simply took the glass around and melded it again. And every year we reported, more glass, more glass. <laughs> Now, that's a, that guy told me that story. And this is what, I mean, these are the unattended consequences of thinking, oh, you know, we can have this society where everybody's going to live and be happy as communists. You know, it, it doesn't work. Well, and part of what it leads to is, if you think of yourself, imagine you are trying to be the elite governing a system like that. And you're trying to compete with the United States and the West. And so part of the reason you get intrigued with nuclear weapons and you get intrigued with poison is it gives you some leverage to offset your weakness. And in that sense, poison is, is a weapon of the weak, not the strong. And so I think part of what we were trying to set up in collusion was this moment when you have uh, a newly aggressive Russian leadership that really wants to go for broke, really wants to find a way to affect the balance of power to reassert great Russian nationalism and in the process is prepared to take really big risks. And in a classic model, which, which frankly, the, the longer I've been around, the more I've looked at, at the deep state and at the bureaucracy, the more I believe that in fact, in a lot of the time it is random Americans 
who just do things above and beyond the call of duty, who somehow cover the gaps that the bureaucracy can't cover. And I think our effort here is to to create American figures who are very human and very real and who rise above their weaknesses. And they're not real because they're all strength. They're real because their commitment to America, their passion for what they're doing, and their understanding of the cost of failure leads them to get more out of themselves than you would have thought possible. I'm so glad you said that. I grew up in a small rural community, a town of a thousand in Colorado, and I was of the Vietnam era. I was draftable. I never, even I was lucky on the lottery, but before that, there was never a threat of me being drafted. Why? Because we had so many volunteers in my small county who wanted to go over because they believed, rightly or wrongly, the, that they needed to fight for their country. And I used to deal with a lot of Vietnam veterans and it, the shame that the way we treated them when they returned. And I lost a good friend over there. And these are people who put to test what patriotism is all about. And so we wanted when Brett Garrett to be a flawed character, a human character, but also someone who really epitomized what I think makes this country great, which is public service. Think about that. We, you know, you become an American. It's, it's not because you were a descendant of a king. It's not because you own land. It's because you believe in a certain concept, and that's called freedom. And for somebody to die for their beliefs, I mean, you know, that to me is the, the real heroism in our country. I sort of grew up with that. My dad spent 27 years in the Army, in the infantry, and went all around the world from World War II to Korea to Vietnam and then after Vietnam. And now hanging out with my wife, Callisto, while she is the ambassador to the Vatican, and seeing the people in the State Department and the people in a variety of other agencies who are serving all over the world. I mean, people who voluntarily go to Afghanistan, voluntarily go to some of the most disease-ridden and dangerous places in uh, equatorial Africa, voluntarily take the risk of being in South Sudan or in, in, in the middle of battle zones. And you realize that there are Americans who rise above the normal and rise above the ordinary, who do it knowingly, because they think it's really important for their country and who get enormous satisfaction. I think that's part of what we're trying to, to achieve with, with both Brett Garrett and Valerie Mayberry is to create two people who have an internal sense of pride that what they're doing matters and it's real and it gives them an ability to serve America. It also gives them an ability to have a an excitement and a challenge in their life. One of the most complex characters and difficult to write, I think, for us was Valerie Mayberry. She was kind of inspired by a couple of female CIA officers I know. We're way beyond the days of the James Bond girl, where they're basically just some uh, object to make the main hero into some, you know, bed-hopping superhero. And I was very proud of how we developed her as a character. We wanted somebody from a different class to kind of contrast the Arkansas roots of our, our main male character, our hero. And so we chose somebody from a very privileged background, a very wealthy family, and trying to 
then see why that person would even want to get involved. And then she has her own problems to deal with because she ended up marrying a reporter who ends up getting killed. And so she's struggling with that grief, which, again, is something I think we both tend to like to write things in our past. And in my case, you know, my wife's uh, lost two of her sisters. And so I, I understand the grief that comes comes with that. We want somebody who really wants to serve fellow. She could have retired, been rich, lived off coupons. Instead, she's in the FBI. Well, and I think that's part of what has made America extraordinary. And I think what we're trying to capture here is this country will survive as long as it somehow arouses in enough people. And you don't have to be perfect. That's, again, one of the key underlying points of collusion is that you can be heroic without having been perfect and that you can rise above yourself by dedicating yourself to a larger cause, by taking on a greater challenge, and that in that process, you can have a very challenging life but also a very fulfilling life. And I think that the people I've known who've done this really well, most of them would tell you that at times it's hard, but that it really gives them a sense of satisfaction that they can't imagine finding anywhere else, and that that's a key part of it. I think, in a sense, the Russian experience is endurance. You can't change it, and you can't avoid it, so you endure. Uh, And then you hope that you'll have a decent life. And and as you point out, you you don't laugh too loud because you don't want the authorities to notice you. And also, one of the things fascinating about the Russians was everybody lied. Everybody was, everybody lied, and everybody was expected to spy on each other. And so even in families, it really corrupted the whole, I mean, you lied because you had to say, oh, yes, everything, it's like you said, everything's great. We have bread, we have fish, we have everything, when in fact you knew you didn't. And one of the other things that was interesting was that uh, the mother of this, this couple, when the Soviet Union collapsed and all these Western goods came in, she was stunned because she didn't know that people lived better than they did in Russia because the Iron Curtain was so, so strong. So, again, it's kind of the old Russia, the emerging Russia, and to me, the Russia of Putin. Putin was a KGB colonel. Mm-hmm. The system that led to the current Russian structure was the 70-year Soviet system. And so that's the system which, in collusion, we show making one last desperate effort to try to rebalance things by the use of poison and by the use of covert attacks because they can't compete in an open, honest way. And I, th- I, think, I think readers will find collusion interesting both at a human level and at a geopolitical level. Uh, and, and they'll find it, I think, an introduction to thinking about the world a little differently than before they picked the novel up. When we come back, I'll be joined by Amy Knight, author of Orders to Kill, The Putin Regime and Political Murder. Remarkable research and wrote Orders to Kill, 
the Putin regime and political murder, which I think puts in context why we think the Russians have this tendency towards killing people and in particular using poison. But Amy, first of all, would you just tell us your background? Why did you decide to investigate this area? I've been a Russia watcher for a long time. I actually used to teach at the college level. I worked for 18 years at the U.S. Library of Congress as a Soviet-slash-Russian affairs analyst. This will be my sixth book. I've always followed everything that's, that's been going on in the Kremlin and in Russia. And I also, of course, have been you know, most drawn to the democratic opposition movement. And, you know, that first murder that I talk about in my book of Galina Starovoitova, who is a parliamentarian in Russia, she was shot in, in her apartment entrance in 1998. And I had met Galina, and she was with the U.S. Institute of Peace for a year in Washington, and I really admired her so much. And, you know, it just struck me that there was something going on that people weren't as aware of, you know. And at that point, Vladimir Putin was the head of the FSB and very closely connected with St. Petersburg. And I didn't particularly attribute it to Putin, but it was a very strange murder, and it never really has been solved properly. So that got you intrigued with the way in which the Russians police themselves? Well, it got me, yes. I always had a sort of a specialty in the security services. I'd written a book on the KGB, so I was always following what these officials were doing. And then that combined with my interest in Russian critics, uh, journalists and, and politicians, led me to follow. Every time, you know, there was a murder, I was, you know, wondering what happened. And, of course, you know, the Russian independent media is, has always been very good since the Soviet collapse. So that, combined with interviews, enabled me to kind of follow these different cases. Just as an aside, I noticed that one of the books you wrote was on Berea, Stalin's head of the KGB, who is himself sort of a remarkable case study in brutality. Yes. He is, very much so. I should mention that I also was a historian of the Stalin period, and it just struck me that um, no one had ever really investigated his, the history of Leverenti Beria, who was Stalin's right-hand, Stalin's henchman, uh, kind of from the get-go, and who was a key administrator of the purges, you know, the famous purges in the 30s. So I decided I would I would write a biography of him. And this, I should add, was prompted by the fact that Soviet archives opened up in the 90s for a while. <laughs> and one could really find out a great deal about Beria and Stalin. And I also went to Georgia, to Tbilisi, and worked there, did a little research there. So, yeah, that was my first book. And I think, you know, that just continued my interest in the security services and the the more sinister aspect of of how Russia is ruled. Picking Beria as a, as a starting point, it must have been very eye-opening at times to be in the archives and realize in a mundane way how routine this was, that this was just the way they did things. Yes, you're absolutely right. It did become a routine. But, you know, towards the end of Stalin's life, 
Beria and Molotov and Malenkov and Khrushchev all started to be, they didn't particularly appreciate Stalin's bloodthirstiness, and they were actually, I think, quite pleased when he died. And what followed was a sort of Soviet version of the liberalization, and they stopped the killings. They settled their scores in different ways. By the way, have you seen The Day Stalin Died? The Death of Stalin, the British film, yes, yes, and it's it's excellent, and I would say quite historically accurate. I love the fact that it, it was able to make it almost humorous. Not everybody, not everybody caught it, but I laughed. <laughs> I thought I've now watched it, I think three times because I thought it was it was done brilliantly to communicate a level of horror which was more horrifying for being funny. Exactly. I think had they had they done it purely straight, yes. it would have been deadening. But by doing it the way they did, you really got a sense of just how terrifying the regime was. Exactly, exactly. And I should add, by the way, that although, you know, Beria is always sort of the the poster person for all of Stalin's terror and violence, all of these men contributed to it and went along with it until they worried that it was finally going to hit them. I'm working on a book right now on China, and it's fascinating to realize that in the... 20s and 30s, Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and others studied Stalin and and Lenin as role models. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Stalin's brief history of the Bolshevik Revolution was a major work that both uh, Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong relied on. And it's a work which teaches the virtue of purges, that that if you you, you maintain constant turmoil in the party by every few years having a purge. And I think it's part of what explains what happened with Mao in the 50s and 60s, that in a way he was almost going off the rails the way Stalin had after World War II. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this was a, this was a, meth, a, a, a timed and true method for keeping the population in subjugation. I gather from Pete Early, my co-author, who's done a good bit of writing on the KGB, I think he met you. I met him in the Washington area when he wrote one of his first books, and we got together because of our common interest in the Russian security services. So he and I were brainstorming and came up with the concept of collusion, in this case, more deadly version than than, uh, the politics of the last couple of years, and thought about sort of a Putin-like figure who gets deeply offended and decides to teach us a lesson. And it's striking how often the Russians, both the Soviets and now the current regime, are willing to be a little sloppy and open in who they're killing, I think because they want to send a signal. I think that they they actually think it's to their advantage to have you know what they are doing. But what's your take on that? I'm in agreement with you. I have just been writing a postscript to my latest book because it's coming out in paperback in Britain and I'm including a postscript about the Skripal poisonings in the UK in March of 2018. And uh, it really struck me that these people were, we now know that they were GRU officers who actually put the poison Novichok, which is a nerve agent, on the doorknob of Sergei Skripal. They were sloppy. They allowed themselves to be photographed on the CTV, uh, recorded on the cameras, walking around the streets of Salisbury, where Skripal lived. 
and they, you know, they left a perfume-type bottle with the rest of the Novichok in a trash can, which was later picked up by two innocent people, uh, two Brits, and they were revealed as their true names were eventually uncovered, and so we we now it pretty much have a smoking gun that the Kremlin was directly involved with this, and I don't think the Kremlin particularly cares, because if you, you know, people have talked about what would be the motive of Mr. Putin to have such a crime carried out in the U.K. Surely he was, you know, knew that it was going to cause a huge shockwave in the West and sanctions and diplomats being kicked out. But Putin is not is maybe as rational as, as we uh, assume he is. And, and I think he and, and his colleagues really wanted to send a message to would-be defectors that this could happen to them if they, you know, if they turn to the West. And also, I think it reinforces for Putin this image of him being a strong man who can stand up to the West. And, you know, the Russian public, when Litvinenko was poisoned in Britain in 2006, we, again, the killers were found. They were, got themselves back to Russia. They weren't extradited. And they did polls of what the Russian people thought about this murder, and most of them felt that Litvinenko deserved it. I haven't seen any polls about Skripal, but I think Putin was playing to an audience. And so I don't think it really matters all that much to the Kremlin whether or not we know that they were the ones that orchestrated these recent poisonings in Britain. So you mentioned that they, these were two GRU agents, which, if I remember correctly, is the military intelligence unit. Right. It's the military intelligence branch of the Ministry of Defense. And it's very interesting because in earlier days, it was always the KGB and the KGB's successors, the FSB, the Federal Security Service, they were the ones, along with the Foreign Intelligence uh, Agency, that would do these things abroad. The GRU also didn't do bad things, but it was more in the, under the purview of foreign intelligence and the FSB. And now it seems like the GRU is carrying out more of these acts of violence. And also, as we know now, the election interference because it was the GRU was responsible for a lot of the hacking of our presidential election. Can you take us back? One of the things I'm always struck with when people try to understand Putin, and this is the one comment you made earlier about whether or not he was rational, isn't it likely that he is rational within the framework of a Cold War-trained KGB officer who rose to a pretty decent rank and would have regarded levels of violence and brutality that we'd be horrified by is just kind of all in a day's work. I mean, how do you explain the impact of having been a KGB officer and now being president of Russia? Oh, it's huge. The outlook of the KGB was that the West was an enemy. And anything that happened even within the country, like the dissident movement and so forth, rather than looking inward at the causes might be responsible for some of the dissent, it was always blamed on the West. 
And another part of this sort of KGB philosophy, which has continued on today among with Putin and his associates, who are also from the security services, it's this idea that, again, that the West is an enemy, and also that in order to sort of perpetuate your regime or to buttress your regime, you have to be aggressive militarily, I mean, or threatening militarily. In other words, they there's always this kind of impetus that they have to do something to reassert Russia's predominance abroad. And of course, particularly given that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, they lost a lot of their territory. So there is kind of this almost instinctive need to be forceful and uncompromising. And Putin has inherited this mindset, and he continues, along with most of his ruling clique are former security or current security officials. So, so in a sense, their very weakness leads them to project a kind of brutal toughness because they think if they can't keep us off balance and frightened that our relative advantages would be overwhelming. Exactly, exactly. In Russia, it's their instinct that, that even Western businessmen who don't want to get involved in Russian politics and who are very complimentary to Putin, even these people are to be distrusted. So, you know, they're, I'm hoping that I'm not generalizing too much, but I would say that, in a sense, they do sort of shoot themselves in the foot because what's happening now in Russia is there's a lot of discontent over the economic decline of the country. And instead of doing things to encourage more investment and improve relations with the West, which would enable Russia to make the changes in their own economy, these men at the top in the Kremlin, including Putin, don't think about that. They think basically about their own bank accounts. The immediate core team around Putin measures life by their victories. And if that means it impoverishes the country, as long as their victories are going on, it's fine. Yes, and as long as they can continue with their immense corruption that's all pretty much they care about. And they also, which I find kind of amusing, they also make sure there's a lot of nepotism in the Russian government. So they, they make sure that their children, you know, get plum jobs in the Kremlin and in ministries and so on and so forth. And so they, you know, they share their wealth with their own. But, um, yeah, they don't really seem to worry very much about the people, even even from a rational point of view, they should be nervous because enough dissatisfaction, you know, we have to remember that one of the key causes of the Soviet collapse was economic discontent. Let me ask you, in, in this whole pattern of poisoning people uh, both inside the country and overseas, to what extent is that a an invention under Lenin and Stalin of the Cheka and the Ugpu, and to what extent does it actually go back to the czarist period? I mean, this fascination with poison. I talk about that in, in my latest book, Orders to Kill. There is a tradition of terror and violence that does go back to the czarist period. I try to make it clear that I don't think it can be attributed to the fact that Russians are more bloodthirsty than other nationalities. I think it related to just the way their political system worked 
and the experiences of the Mongol invasion in the 13th century, they just tended to solve some of their succession disputes by by murder. And of course, there was no, you know, there was no government that could actually call people to account. So yeah, there was that tradition. And you know, even Stalin, aside from the mass terror that he inflicted on his people, there were also occasionally these covert murders, where people like Maxime Gorky would die, and everybody would suspect, or Sergei Kirov, the head of the Leningrad party, who was shot, people would suspect that Stalin was behind it, but you know, they never could prove it. This is a tradition that goes way back, and I think it's just something that has continued. So Pete and I, in developing uh, our novel Collusion, really picked up on a couple of thematics. One is the degree to which the Soviets and now the Russians work on poison gases at a level which they cheerfully lie about, but which on at least one occasion, I believe, I'm going to say the 1970s, led to devastation of a town because the poison gas factory got developed a leak. They have these highly secure, state-controlled laboratories had and still have this kind of poison lab right in Moscow. But in addition to that, in a town called, or a city called Saratov, they have a special laboratory that produces some of these poisons. And I believe that's where polonium-210 which was the poison that was administered to Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006. That came from that factory. And it's controlled by the security services, very guarded with top, you know, no one could possibly get into these places. And this is why, and the same thing would go for Novichok, which was the, you know, the poison that almost killed the Skripals. We know that because it's so highly guarded that no rogue killer could get a hold of these poisons, that in general it it has to be something that's approved at the top if they are used. This has to be Putin or whoever his successor is because they have direct immediate control over that part of the security system. Nobody else below them would be able to go out and do these kind of things without at least the tacit approval of the dictator. Yeah, there would never be a written order, of course. But I always take issue with people who say, well, maybe Putin didn't actually order these killings. He just created a kind of an environment in which they could happen. I don't believe that for a minute. I think when it comes to high-profile killings, starting with, say, Anna Politkovskaya, the journalist who was a virulent critic of Putin. She also was gunned down in her uh, part in the stairwell of her apartment, followed on with numerous others, including Boris Nemtsov, who was shot on a bridge just outside the Kremlin. These crimes would not be just orchestrated by people acting on their own initiative without consent and directed ultimately by Mr. Putin. I think the way the system worked, there isn't room for kind of a personal initiative in any of these killings. As Pete and I were thinking this through, I mean, part of the point is that there's been no pushback 
If you look at Ukraine, where I think just recently another person was killed in Kiev, if you look at the way they operate, stealing Crimea, then stealing part of eastern Ukraine, then blocking off uh, the Sea of Azov, and then deliberately going after people in Great Britain, which seems to be their favorite country to do that in, the part of the message we're teaching them is that they can get away with it. I mean, this is a huge dilemma for the West, because I think that Theresa May reacted very appropriately after the recent poisonings in Britain. But, you know, you have to remember that after Litvinenko was assassinated in 2006, she was a home secretary then, and she really resisted a full-fledged investigation of that murder. And it wasn't until Litvinenko's widow, Marina, who really persevered and pushed and pushed and pushed, that they finally had an official inquiry in 2015. So they did react at that point very strongly. And I think that Britain is is to be admired for how they've stood up to the Russians with this recent poisoning. But I would have to say that here in the United States, we haven't had a nearly as strong a reaction to this. The death of Mikhail Lesson in uh, a Washington, D.C. hotel room in 2015, Lesson had been the head of Gazprom Media, and he was really sort of Putin's chief propagandist for a number of years. He was an oligarch and became extremely wealthy. He had two children who uh, were living out on the West Coast, actually, in the United States, and he came to D.C. We don't know exactly why. Some people said he was going to talk to the FBI and tell them some information that they might have wanted to know. He also had been invited to a dinner in honor of Piotr Avon, who was an oligarch who had contributed some money to philanthropy. In any case, Lesson was found dead in the DuPont Circle Hotel, November 2015, and they ruled the death to be from falls that he had taken when he was drunk. But there are quite a few people who think that's not the whole story, and particularly Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, has actually gotten some of the medical reports and has openly questioned whether or not he didn't actually die by accident. So I guess I bring up the lesson case only to point out that, yes, it's, these murders have tended to happen in Britain, but it could happen in the United States. Russia is not a democracy with a free press. So the only time we in the West can react is when something happens, you know, in our own country. And that's, I think, why Britain reacted so strongly the last time. I think that the Russian oligarchs, many of whom live in Britain, have been not very happy about this latest poisoning because it's made it more difficult for them. They're under a lot more scrutiny, and their finances are under more scrutiny. So I think the best thing that we can do in the West is to continue with sanctions, continue to call out the Kremlin, expel diplomats if something happens again, at least make it clear to them that there will be repercussions. Whether or not it will stop the behavior is another question. Do you think they have a particular kind of poison they prefer, or are they kind of equal opportunity poisoners? (laughs) 
Well, polonium-210 that was used by... Now, these people were hired by the FSB to kill Alexander Litvinenko in London. That is a very, very dangerous, deadly poison. And that, I think, perhaps Russia uh, learned a lesson in that case because actually the two killers were careless. Apparently, they had not been properly educated on how dangerous and deadly polonium-210 was because they actually contaminated themselves. And they ended up having to be in uh, in hospital in back in Russia afterwards. They spread polonium on the plane, in their hotel rooms. As somebody said, like Kensel and Gretel, they just sprinkled crumbs of it all over London. They mishandled it badly. And I think that Russia would, if they ever decide to use a substance again, they probably wouldn't pick polonium-210. I'm not an expert on Novichok, but as we know from, you know, what can happen just by turning a doorknob, if that poison is on the knob, it can be also have unintended consequences. I think they've used Novichok in the past in other cases. There have been, you know, a lot of stories about it being used earlier. Whatever poison they decided upon, I think that whoever is planning and orchestrating a murder will be very, very cautious because these things can have unintended repercussions. If you look at the people that the Russians have targeted outside Russia, they tend to be people that the Russians view as traitors. They must weigh the pros and cons every time such an action is taken. The real problem with what's happening now in Russia and with Mr. Putin's violent anti-democratic rule is that the Russians didn't have a proper lustration after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They did not rid themselves of former KGB officials and Communist Party officials. I mean, they didn't have a proper reckoning with their past. And so this is why we're seeing what we see today, because the tradition is being continued of what went before the Soviet collapse. And until they get rid of the people who are carrying on this tradition of violence, it's never going to stop. It would be nice if there was a way to get to sort of one more Russian revolution leading to a genuinely democratic and open Russia, but that we may not see that in our lifetime. Listen, thank you very, very much for taking this time, and we wish you luck as you continue down the road of trying to explain Russia to the rest of us. Well, thank you very much, Newt. It was nice talking to you. When we come back, I'll be joined by Jack Devine, a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency. Jack Devine spent over 30 years working inside the CIA. From the late 1960s to the late 1990s, Jack was involved in a range of the most intense and often covert actions which the CIA undertook. He has a wealth of experience to share. He can speak about the nature of the spy game, 
better than almost any living individual. And he's a vital resource for what we're talking about in terms of the Russians. Devine himself is the author of Good Hunting, an American spy master's story. The book talks about his time in the agency and the role of covert action in advancing government interest on the world stage. He was in Chile before the coup against Allende. He played a central role in the Afghan task force, and he eventually took charge in operations that sought to fund and arm the Mujahideen in their fight against the Soviet Union. He ran the counter-narcotics operation in South America, where he oversaw the capture of Pablo Escobar. He then took over the larger CIA-based counter-narcotics operation, which coordinated the response to global narcotics trafficking effort. After he left the CIA, Devine founded the Arkin Group, a preeminent New York-based consulting operation. He's joined the Council on Foreign Relations. He has been vocal about Russia's covert poisoning operations and how the Russian state goes about poisoning an individual. He's also been active about the whole nature of Russian intelligence operations. So, Jack, let me start with why do you think the Russians are so fascinated with the use of poison? The Russian system, that's always existed. So you go back to Trotsky being assassinated in, in Mexico City with a hatchet and uh, the famous Markov case on the, on the Waterloo Bridge. So we can go on and on. But today, what I think is interesting with the collapse of communism, there was a sparkle of democracy. But now we've drifted back into the old autocratic system. And with it, comes what I would consider this unrestrained use of force. And I'm amazed to find out, and I think I'll catch a breath after that, but there, the parliament and the Duma actually passed a law in 2006, which gives uh, extrajudicial, extra legal authority to basically assassinate enemies of the state, dissidents. I mean, it's actually part of the Russian system. I can't imagine any law ever being put on the table, let alone passed. So there's a world of difference. There isn't, my bottom line point, there's no, there isn't parity. There is two different worlds in how you approach the intelligence business. While there are some similarities, this is one of the huge differences. I'm always struck that we sort of shrug off the degree to which Putin was, you know, a fully trained professional KGB officer with all of the enthusiastic propensity both for dishonesty and for violence that is at the heart, uh, going all the way back to the Cheka under Lenin, of the Russian secret system. And that I always thought to myself, if you look at what they're willing to do their own, to their own people, it shouldn't shock you that the level of brutality they're willing to employ overseas. But given all the knowledge you have of the Russian system, how it evolved, how it operates, What's your interpretation of Putin, and how do you think we should see him? I think that's a key point, and if we could quote Putin, I mean, he once said, once a KGB guy, always a KGB guy, and I think he meant it, and I knew it, I understood what he was saying, and I might say the same thing, once a CIA guy, always a CIA guy, but there's different implications, so if we look at Putin's career in the KGB. You know, he wanted to be in it at a very early age. This is not a fluke. I mean, he was 17 and rejected, but then was eventually got in. And he spent, uh, I think, almost a decade. Putin actually served in Dresden. <laughs> he served in East Germany. I mean, if you want to talk about an oppressed environment, and it was the, 
the haven. It was the center of espionage. There were more spies in East Germany than the rest of the world combined. When you look at what the Russians did in 2016, you know, they're meddling in the election from an operational point of view. You know, they take some pride that they did so many uh, Facebook, Twitter, got into the election system. And if you step back and say, you know, that was maybe a successful operation, but what a lousy strategy because it now has driven a huge spike in the public mind here in the United States, and it's made any reset with them so much more remote, and it leads to Russia having a weaker economic system, not integrated. So sometimes operators don't think of the longer arc of history. They have probably killed more people outside their own country than any other government in modern times. And they seem to, my guess is this is clearly done with Putin's absolute understanding and approval. They're willing to pay the price to prove they can do it. I mean, what's your take on it as a strategy? Because this is clearly something that they developed as a strategic weapon. I think it's a very good analysis. And I don't think people understand that they're willing to pay that price. In other words, is Sherple, the former uh, intelligence officer that worked for the British and was, uh, they tried to assassinate him in 2018 in London, uh, England, and they could have done it 10 different ways, but they used a nerve agent, and it's like right in your face. I mean, it wasn't meant to be clandestine. At the end of the day, they wanted to send a message to all other intelligence officers, the fact that we're going to come and get you. So... Yeah, there was a lot of static Russian officers thrown out of the country, more sanctions. I mean, but they're prepared to live with that. And, you know, a few years earlier, they did the same thing, Litvinenko, in 2006. And, you know, there was a tremendous reaction to it when they used plutonium to kill him. And, you know, there again, here you go, back 12 years later, they're doing it against Sherpa. So they're willing to pay pay the price. This is why I think it's a flawed strategy. I think he has decided that that's not going to happen, and he is going to take a very aggressive situation. And it's not just in poisoning, but if you look at Venezuela, that's right in your face. Uh, Ukraine, right in your face. I mean, he's executing a very strong Cold War strategy without communism, okay? And I would say, is that really the right strategy for them? He thinks so. Well, and that's why in, in, in our novel, Collusion, we end up with a very aggressive Russian strategy that on the surface you would think was implausible, except that every once in a while he doubles down. I mean, whether it's seizing Crimea or cutting off the, the Sea of Azov, or as you point out, deliberately getting in our backyard and, and uh, in a sense pulling our chain in Venezuela. Part of what I'm intrigued with is it's almost like it's an art form, if you will. I mean, polonium is apparently a million times more poisonous than cyanide. It, it's something which has to be a state-produced, you know, the, this couldn't have been a random event. And it has to have been designed to be detected. I mean, they did this deliberately knowing it would send a signal. And I assume the signal was anybody else who betrays us, you should know we may come and kill you. But doesn't it strike you that it's almost hard to predict that a modern government would deliberately use such a readily identifiable substance, which only they had, in order to send a signal by killing a guy in a really grotesque way. 
and in the process, by the way, also giving radiation poisoning to other people. If you were really artful in this and you wanted to get rid of somebody, you make them disappear. I mean, you don't have any evidence, right? And that isn't that hard. Just ask the people that took care of Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, it, you don't, and they didn't have a full intelligence service with all the resources. It was meant to be seen for what it is. You know, I question the, the wisdom of it. In fact, when I when we looked at the 2016 election, I thought, well, you know, this is really dumb. I mean, did they really do this? But we better be prepared to live with the fact that they have successes and that there are, you know, moles inside our government. We've always had them. I said I know a couple of them personally. I mean, they're always there. So this looks a little ragged around the edges, but they've been working you know, they've been working since 1917, and then when they fell apart in 91, it was by 93, they were back in business. And there's more Russian intelligence operators today than there ever were. We have a Russian agent inside the U.S. Senate in our novel collusion. We were trying to communicate what real collusion could look like and how dangerous it could really be. Most Americans are slow to accept the fact that anybody could betray a democratic country, you know, one that stands for liberty. In other words, you have trouble getting your head around it. So along that same line, we set up in our novel collusion, we set up a pretty radical, daring gambit by Putin to really try to uh, destabilize the United States. We've seen a lot of things that don't make sense through the years, and you've ticked off several of them. And here we go with, it doesn't make sense to what they did to me. It doesn't make sense what they did in the 2016 election. It doesn't make sense. that they're in, the, in this day and age, in the assassination game, is absurd. I think what you're describing about Putin and where we are today, he's read his history. He's been in places where he knows what things are tough. He's going to use he, consistently a tough position. Although he's, I think he's gotten too much credit, as I said earlier, for strategic thinking, I think he's doing a great job from his playbook on the tactics. And I don't think the Ukraine story is well understood here, just how important that is in understanding the history of Russia and where we are today. There's much to be learned from this experience, watching Putin play that card. One of the things I'm really struck with Putin that makes him different and this may go back to the KGB training and the fact that, you know, at one time the Soviet Union did play in our league and had and, and trained people to compete at our level, and, and Putin is one of them. I think of him as a person who has a terrible hand, which he plays brilliantly. But he looks intuitively for those opportunistic moments where he can really make a difference at relatively minimum risk. I've come to believe this is actually, he's dealing with what he has, but it is a strategy that he has chosen to execute. In other words, instead of trying to really find a reset with the West, he is using the old playbook. In other words, it's not he's doing it because this is the only playbook to be played. I th and this is where I think he's going to be so hard to deal with. I mean, I think President Trump was right to try and do a reset, but if you stand back and say, if the other guy doesn't want to reset, good luck. And I think what has been amply demonstrated in the past two years is that Putin likes this tough guy strategy around the world, and he thinks he's back in the Cold War. The only difference between us is I think he's actually embraced this strategy and thinks it's a good one. Oh, no, I, I don't disagree with that. My point was that strategically in the long run, he has a very weak hand, but his operational style is actually opportunism. I think he's handling it very well. I mean, I give him an A for handling a, an F strategy.
Part of what we try to deal with in collusion is the idea these guys are dangerous because they do have nuclear weapons and because they will do things you can't imagine. I mean, like killing spies in Britain, which gets me to one other thing that, that I'm just curious about. Were there really like a dozen Russians planted deeply in New Jersey? And, and does the TV series that was so popular, The Americans, bear any relationship to reality? It's one of my favorite shows in the context that has a lot of good what we would call the business tradecraft. Now, you take out the sensational part. I, I mean, I think they were more sleepers. But the fact that there are people that are deep embedded in the United States has been part since 1917. We've had people embedded in the system. When I look at it, I ask myself, what the hell are they doing? You know, I don't think anyone's ever answered that question adequately. But they were indeed assets of the government. Putin, I think, actually ended up dating one of them, Chapman, the model-looking mole, if you will. So there is some reality here. And as I said, Americans are slow to accept the fact that you know people can come and pay that kind of price and become – what was I'm trying to think of the one from Bridges Spies that – Tom Hanks played. I mean, it was back in the 50s, which was, you know, a fellow that was totally embedded in America. Colonel Abel. Yeah. He was a genuinely deep agent who I think was prepared to live here the rest of his life if he had to. And this is what I think people need to understand, that just like the couple in the, the movie The Americans, I mean, this, they built a whole life, a new identity. Now, where we got lucky in, in Colonel Abel's case is he had a deputy who was a disaster as a spy and ended up and he was had a drinking problem, but he also stole money. And he knew the KGB was going to come and get him, so he defected in Paris and told us about it. You know, He, he didn't know Abel by name. I'm in New York, as you know, and uh, I, when I go by Central Park, there's a tavern in the green, and they have a board, and they used to have... They used to put stick pins in there to designate whether it was a meeting and where to have the meeting. Abel, he knew that there was, he didn't know Abel's name the way he met him, but he had enough identifying data. And this is the same guy, and it's actually accurate. Not well played in the movie, it's not developed well, but there was a coin, it was hollowed out, and in there there was, you know, a microfilm. And this deputy paid the newspaper boy in New York the coin. The father saw the coin, brought it to the FBI. The FBI knew three or four years ahead of time they couldn't find them until this guy eventually defected. So they're, they've been, it's part of the game. It's been, it's, uh, they, they call them deep undercover moles. It's a really hard life. I've, I know many on our side, and it's a very lonely existence. It's almost like being a missionary for your side. You've decided to sublimate your entire life, living out an alternative life. That's a pretty hard existence. I actually met one fellow, and only one. When you joined the agency, at least when I did, you could tell your parents and your spouse. But I actually knew a fellow who was, you know, who was from the previous generation. But why or how he just his wife didn't know he worked at CIA. I mean, I don't know how you do it, but. I fortunately was able to tell people that, tell my wife, and I told my father, which uh, I was authorized. But what he did is told the whole world, all my cousins and aunts. <laughs> so every time I took the polygraph, they said, well, did you tell anybody? No, I didn't tell anybody. I told my wife and my father. They didn't ask me the second question. Did your father tell anybody? 
And there was even a rumor, which I refused to check, that he actually put a, an article in the Delaware County Times saying, my son the spy, you know. So I was undercover, all like many all CIA people abroad. But there are those that are way out there at the end with no connection. And it's a very lonely, hard life. And you get, a, and that's why I think you get a picture of that in, in the Americans. I'm very grateful you take this time to talk with us. And I think people will find it fascinating. You've you know, you both have had a remarkable career, and you also obviously kept learning every year in that process. And I think your observations are really helpful. Well, dude, I enjoyed the discussion. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you to my guests, Pete Early, Amy Knight, and Jack Devine. You can see an excerpt from my new novel, Collusion, and explore the stories of famous Russian poisoning cases throughout time on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we're taking on the topic of opioids and pain management in the military and veteran community. I'm pleased to welcome as my guests, General Eric Schumacher and Dr. Tripp Buchenmeier, who both served on the Pain Management Task Force and are currently at the Defense and Veterans Center for Integrative Pain Management. What we really determined, mostly because of the service members expressing to us that while they were begging us for pain management and begging for these opioids, because they are so effective at reducing pain intensity, if they would have known what that meant to their eventual recovery and rehabilitation, they would have begged us to come up with some other ideas. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.